Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Good morning, good afternoon, everybody at St. Michael's Episcopal Church and all the other listeners of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. And because this is part of our Lenten series, I like to remind people who are new to this podcast that Calm Words for Anxious Hearts is a podcast we started in March of 2020 when the pandemic hit to keep people both sane, hopeful, and theologically grounded in what was sure to be a very uncertain and anxious time. And uh, as I've joked many times before, we thought we'd make about seven, eight episodes and life would be back to normal. And here we are with episode 58 or 59 um, and doing a Lenten series, interviewing a really smart person, a colleague and a good friend, the Reverend Bertie Pearson. So just a little bit about Bertie. He has a degree from the Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley. He's a priest um, and a friend. He serves on the Commission on Ministry here in the Diocese of Texas. He has served a lot of posts as a priest, um, including being the vicar of um, San Francisco de Assis here in Austin. He is an adjunct professor at Seminary of the Southwest and the Iona School for Ministry. He is currently the rector of Grace in Georgetown, and he also put himself through seminary as a DJ. He's a podcaster, has the number two podcast in the country of Finland right now. Number 62, sadly. Oh, I'm sorry, number 62, but it's going to move up, called The History of Christianity. And uh, Bertie, thanks for being with us. Uh, It's so good to have you here. I'm really excited about your reflection and our conversation and to introduce you to the people of St. Michael's Episcopal Church. Thank you so much for having me, John. I have to say that I'm like barely an adjunct to the Seminary of the Southwest. I haven't taught in several years, but I have taught there occasionally. Um, I did teach at Iona for seven years, so uh, that part's true. <clears throat> but um, yeah, it's really an honor to be here. I'm, I'm such a big fan of your ministry and uh, the people of St. Michael's. It's, it's a wonderful congregation. Every time I've gotten to visit, it's been such a pleasure. Um, you had on this same podcast one of my favorite priests, one of my favorite preachers in the world, which is our good friend, Father Aaron Zimmerman. And um, he talked about a low anthropology. And I was listening to that. I really enjoyed that. And I thought I would give the um, unauthorized prequel to the low anthropology of Aaron Zimmerman. So this is kind of like one of those confusing Star Wars things where you're like, wait, Luke Skywalker's a baby now and there's baby Yoda who's actually Yoda's grandson. What is this? <laughs> so I want to sort of think about like how we came to have a low anthropology and maybe give a sort of, in a way, a kind of alternate picture of the human person, which is not incompatible with what Aaron had to say. So um, this I think of as kind of a patristic anthropology. So if you don't know what patristics is, it's the study of the fathers of the church. Who cares about the fathers of the church? Well, you can think about um, one way that we sometimes define, de- uh, define what it is to be 
an Anglican is that we um, make our decisions in our faith by the lights of uh, what some people call the three-legged stool of scripture, tradition, and reason. Scripture, we know what that is, holy scripture. Reason, we know what that is, human reason, logic, thinking. But tradition, we sometimes misunderstand. And we sometimes think about tradition as being like whatever they do in church, organs, stained glass windows, whatever it is. There's the old joke, how many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is change. My great grandfather gave that light bulb to St. Michael's. We are never changing that light bulb. But that's not actually what tradition means in the church. So tradition is specifically the apostolic tradition. And this is the teaching that was handed on from Christ to his disciples, to the apostles, and from the apostles to subsequent generations of the church. And this is important because if you want to know what Christ said about something, and it's not in the Bible, then there's only one place to look. And that is what he taught the apostles, what the apostles taught their disciples. So you might want to know what the official position of Christianity is on something like the Eucharist. And the Bible doesn't actually tell you that much about the nuts and bolts of the Eucharist. It certainly makes statements about Eucharistic doctrine. Christ calls his flesh the the true bread. Um, St. Paul talks about the Eucharist. But if you want to know more, it might be helpful to go, if it's not in the Gospel of John, what did John's students write about the Eucharist? What did people who learned from St. John write about the Eucharist? So you could look at someone like Ignatius of Antioch, who learned from St. John, who wrote the Gospel of John. You could look at uh, Polycarp of Smyrna, who learned from St. John. And in their writings, specifically Ignatius of Antioch's, you get a very clear picture of what the Eucharist meant to the church. So patristics is kind of looking back at the Christians who learned from the apostles, the Christians who learned from those Christians, the Christians who learned from those Christians, in this kind of chain of teaching that stems from Christ himself. So that's patristics. So what's a patristic anthropology? It's kind of thinking about the human person in terms of the writings of these early Christians, the writings of the early church. So Aaron talked about this low anthropology, which is that people are far from perfect. That we are, we sometimes make the mistake of thinking we can perfect ourselves with New Year's resolutions and exercise plans, X, Y, and Z, or that we have this like perfect mind that can keenly penetrate any mystery. And that those are silly illusions, which I 100% agree with. Um, The thing is, for the early church, for the fathers of the church, for the disciples of the apostles, that was not actually what defines humanity. So sometimes we'll say like, well, I'm only human. Of course, I'm judgmental. Of course, I get angry sometimes. Of course, I stab that guy. Like whatever it is, I'm only human. But for the writers of the early church, that would be an insane thing to say. And I'll tell you why. So humanity, as it was created, was not created to be that way. Humanity, as we were created, God's plan A for humanity was full of grace, was full of joy, was full of peace, was full of love, most of all. Humanity was invulnerable to death. Humanity never got sick. Humanity was never overwhelmed by 
anger or desire or covetousness or whatever it was, humanity was, well, it looked a lot like Jesus. So Kierkegaard said that there was never anybody standing around Jesus that loved themselves as much as Jesus loved that person. Jesus was this like nonstop fire hose of love for every man, woman, and child that came near him. Jesus was completely full of generosity and goodness and peace and love and joy. And that was, that was how God defined humans from the beginning. Unfortunately, humans turned away from God. But before that, humanity was made to be in relationship with God, to love God, to be in harmony with creation, to in a sense love the creation, and not only that, to have dominion over the creation. And this doesn't mean to do all the strip mining or burning of forests or whatever that they wanted to. This meant like actual dominion over creation. So when some of the fathers talk about the miracles of Christ, they'll say he didn't actually do any miracles. Now, this may sound like the sort of heretical thing to say, but what they meant by that is that the actions of Jesus that we think of as miracles were actually examples of his humanity. Jesus is fully God and fully human, but being fully human again doesn't mean, oh, I'm only human. Of course he got colds. Of course he got angry. Of course he got headaches, whatever it is. That's not true of Jesus because you and I, we get angry. We get colds, we get headaches, we get whatever, because we are partially human. We have a fallen humanity, a diminished humanity. Jesus is the fullness of humanity. He's fully human, as well as being fully God, as well as being fully divine. So he has dominion over creation, not in the virtue of his divinity, but in virtue of his humanity. So when a hard wind is blowing, and the disciples are in a boat and they're like, ah, we're going to sink. Jesus tells the wind to stop. And the wind stops because he has dominion over creation. When Jesus wants to get to the disciples and they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, he tells the water he wants to walk on it. And the water allows him to walk on it because he has dominion over creation. There is a sick body. He says, be healed. It's healed. There's a dead body. He says, rise. It rises. He has dominion over creation. And in a way, the sort of original humanity, this perfect humanity, is kind of radiating out from Christ and changing things around him everywhere he goes. Eden, in a sense, the kingdom of God is radiating out from Christ, changing things wherever he goes. So this, for the fathers, this is what actual humanity looks like. Not your and my humanity, not the low anthropology humanity that we experience, but the true human nature made in the image and likeness of God. So if that was plan A, what changed? So if you read first and second century Jewish documents, if you look at texts like um, the Mishnah, which is a collection of um, sometimes called the oral Torah, the wisdom of the rabbis, which is equally important to the Torah, runs parallel to the Torah, they talk a lot about something called the Yetzirah, which is the evil inclination. And they might say that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve didn't have this evil inclination, this inclination to turn away from God, away from God and towards selfishness, away from God and towards desire, away from God and towards anger, hate, whatever it is. They didn't have this 
voice inside them that said, you know, go, forget about God, go check social media instead. They didn't have it inside of them, but it, they had it outside of them. Adam and Eve had this serpent that came to them and encouraged them to turn away from God. And Adam and Eve had this fast. There's one tree in the garden of which they couldn't eat, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and this, this voice of temptation, this voice of the enemy, came to them and said, eat it, you'll be like gods, it'll be fantastic. You know, break this one rule that you have. And so they do, and they turn away from God, and everything changes in the fall. And the rabbis would say that that, that voice, that temptation to turn away from God, it went from being outside of us to inside of us. And now all of us have this Yetzirah, all of us have this evil inclination, this temptation to turn away from God and towards ourselves, towards our fears and anxieties, towards our desires, towards our covetousness, towards our bitterness and anger, whatever it is, to turn away from true humanity and towards this new diminished human nature. And this is something that we all wrestle with. So as a result of the fall, we have this kind of wounded human nature that Aaron talked about, but that's not what God created. And it's also not the case, and I don't think Aaron would say this either, it's not the case that we are intrinsically evil, that we are absolutely horrible, that we are these just awful, disgusting, terrible worms, that each one of you is basically a little Hitler. That's not what we believe at all, and that's certainly not what the church fathers thought. They thought that we were created in the image of God, that we were God's image. We are God's beloved children. In a sense, we are still those perfect beings, but we kind of run from that perfection. We run from him who is the source of our true life, him who is the source of all joy, all peace, all love, and we follow that evil inclination over and over and over again. The good news is there is a way out. So in the Garden of Eden, you have these two really important trees. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there's another tree which gets talked about. And it also comes up in John's Revelation. It's a little bit of a Bible trivia. I'll give you a sec. Do you remember what that tree is? It's the tree of life. So after Adam and Eve eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, oh man, we got to keep them away from the tree of life. Otherwise they'll be like us. So he kicks them out of Eden and he puts an angel at the gate of the garden with a flaming sword. So they can't get in and eat of the tree of life. And it sounds like if you're just reading this with kind of untutored eyes, it sounds like God is saying, "Uh oh, I got to protect the source of my power. Now, if they eat of the tree of life, then they're really going to be like me and I'm going to have these rivals and it's going to be terrible. It's going to be like, you know, we're going to have the cowboys and the oilers. I don't know, whatever rivals you want to pick. They're going to be the opposite team and they're going to be just as powerful as me. So I've got to protect the source of my power. That's not what Genesis is saying at all. The fathers of the church would say that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and as a mercy. So if Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, had followed this evil inclination, 
had turned their backs on God and then eaten of the tree of life, they would enter into eternity, rebelling eternally against God. And Adam and Eve would be like the demons. They would be eternally God's enemies, eternally running from God. We are removed from the tree of life so that we have a chance to repent. We sometimes think about repentance as this like something that Jimmy Swaggart would yell at you about. Some guy with a floppy Bible and a red face like, repent, you're a bunch of awful people. That's not what repentance is at all. Repentance is not feeling bad about yourself. Repentance is not reveling in guilt. Repentance is turning back towards Christ. It's moving back towards your original created nature as being the image and likeness of God. So we don't return to our original nature by getting smarter or being better or um, praying more. Well, praying more may be part of it, but like we don't do it through any accomplishing anything. We only do it through giving our lives to Christ, through turning more towards him, through inviting him more into our lives, through just opening our hearts to his grace. And we do this through repentance. One of the greatest uh, parables of Christ is the story of the publican and the Pharisee. You have the Pharisee who comes before the altar of God and he is saying like, oh Lord, thanks for making me so fantastic. You know, thank you for making me a member of one of the best Episcopal churches in the Diocese of Texas. Thank you for allowing me to tithe and be such an incredible Christian. You know, I mean, people look up to me, four-time senior warden, two-time past treasurer. Thank you for making me an awesome, awesome Episcopalian. And then you have this tax collector, this publican, this uh, collaborator with Rome, this kind of wealthy, corrupt guy saying, I got nothing. I got nothing. I got, I, I have nothing with which I can defend myself. All I can say is I'm sorry. And I want to change. I want my heart opened. I want my heart of stone to become a heart of flesh. And this is what repentance looks like. It's not about guilt. It's about seeing the ways in which we have strayed from this path that leads to Christ and just trying to get back on the path. And we do that, again, not through some special plan of becoming perfect people, but through opening our hearts to Christ, through allowing his grace to fill our hearts. St. John says, um, St. John the Baptist says, I must diminish so that he can increase. And that's really kind of what the life of faith is about. It is me diminishing. It is diminishing my ego, my selfishness, my desires, all the stuff about me that gets in the way so that he can increase, so that there is more Christ in my life, more Christ in my thoughts, more Christ in my words, more Christ in my actions. And that's what repentance looks like. When you are sailing a ship, I'm told, I don't sail, but I'm told, you're constantly course correcting. The sailboat starts drifting off to the left, and so you get it back on course. And then it starts drifting off to the right, and then you get back on course. And it starts drifting to the left, and that's what repentance looks like. It is, I want to be fully human. I want to be in relationship with Christ. I want to be the image and likeness of God. And then I get a little too much into my desires, and so I have to get back on the path. And then I get a little bit too much into my worries and fears, and I get back on the path. So it's constantly reminding myself to get back on the path. And to me, this is what Lent is all about. It's the season in which we are honest with ourselves, when we confront both our true human nature, what we were made to be, 
and then also this diminished human nature. That's a result of this turning away from God over and over again. And I attempt to open my heart really wide and allow the grace of Christ to bring me back on that path, to bring me back towards him, to allow Christ to draw me more and more towards him, who is the fullness of humanity, who is the model of who I was created to be. So that's kind of, I guess, a nuancing of Aaron's low anthropology. I think of it as kind of like highest highs and lowest lows, uh, but it's the way that the early church would kind of articulate who we are as human beings in relationship to God and what it is that Christ is doing to us. Bertie, that was awesome. <laughs> Thanks, that was That was so wonderful. You had me like every, I mean, that was just so compact but like so full um so i i mean i'm eager to dive in that was that was wonderful because she did a great job of differentiating and, and also kind of offering a little bit of the backstory behind what aaron offered but um it also complemented it really really well and so i want to kind of start at the ending just because that's where we ended about um getting back on the path and one of the things that I just know about you is that you're currently doing um, some uh, working on a PhD, I think. Um, yes, yeah, I'm doing STM PhD, but yeah, so I'm in the STM yeah. phase. Right now. But really looking into something I'm interested in, the soul, right? We, um, and we talk a lot about the self and, and our culture, but we've lost language of the soul. And for those patristics, if I understand correctly, will was a faculty of the soul, you know, the, the capacity to choose. Um, Augustine spoke of grace as something that uh, both heals, but also helps, something that can actually enable the will um, to make choices to get us back on that path, which, you know, some of the later reformers weren't as big on what grace could or could not do for the will, uh, or at least as I read them. So I'm just wondering about kind of how you see that and um and what role we play in simple choices in day-to-day -day life to turn, to turn to Christ and to get back on that path. You know, there's in church history, there's kind of this interesting spectrum of um, opinions on grace. And they range from what gets called Augustinianism, even though it's not really pure Augustine, to Pelagianism, which is pure Pelagius. So Pelagius was like this um, fifth century uh, motivational coach who was just like, you know, if you want to be perfect, all you got to do is drop down, give me 20, get up, start running. You can do this. I know you can. So for Pelagius, he thought that like humans could just become perfect because we just had this bad example of Adam that we'd been following this whole time. We now have this good example of Christ. So we just got to get to work. He said that, um, that becoming perfect was sort of like uh, being in like one of these big Roman galley ships. If you have this wind of grace that's pushing you along, that's fantastic. But if the wind stops, you got to get out the row the oars and you just start rowing. Augustine actually has a much more nuanced view of the relationship between um, free will and grace. He's very much a believer in free will and very much a believer in grace. Um, but Augustinianism, which is sort of the legacy of Augustine, um, this was a view in which it was basically pure determinism. So, um, right. you know, there's some like biologists or, or probably not even real biologists, but people who kind of theorize about biology who may not know that much about biology, who say that like everything in our body is uh, a chemical reaction and everything is deterministic. Like we, we don't have any free choice at all in what we do. It's just like which um, molecules are bouncing off, which molecules that determines everything in our lives. So 
there's this one perspective that's like you can do whatever all you gotta do is get to work there's another perspective that is you have zero freedom you don't have a choice in anything it just depends on how much grace that god gives you eventually the church settles on what's called the semi-augustinian position which is to say that everything is dependent on the grace of god that you can't do anything good you can't do have any act of prayer you can't have any compassion you can't have any love without the grace of god but the grace of god is offered to absolutely everybody the god's yeah, grace yeah. is constantly streaming out and hitting us in the face like the rays of the sun 24 7. it goes to everyone the only real agency we have is to say yes or to say no to that grace so all of us have the power to accept or reject the grace of God. So I think the will is really important in this process in that we can be like the Virgin Mary, who when God's grace comes to us, we can say, absolutely 100%, I'm in, I'm on board. Or we can be like, I am 99% of the time and say like, it sounds like a good idea in theory. You know, I'd like to be like St. Francis, but I also have a really busy day. I have a bunch of meetings. I have to record this thing for John. Um, I don't really have time for your grace right now. That is, wow, what a, that's a really, really good explanation. So, so in kind of building off of that and some of the choices we have, um, yeah, you quoted uh, Kierkegaard and, and, or, or referenced that, you know, in that moment, um, whenever people were approaching Jesus, that uh, no one loved that person more than Jesus. So, so I think that kind of ties into um, this understanding that God is not stingy, right? That the grace needed in order to uh, repent, to turn to Christ, that it's always present and that that can happen. And, and another way that I think that you really supported that generosity of God was with the brilliant kind of recapturing of Genesis chapter three, that God is not being mean, that God is not, you know, pouting by saying, kick them out of the garden, don't let them eat from the tree of life, that this is actually a great gift of mercy, because if they eat of this tree um, in their subhuman state, they're stuck for eternity as subhuman. So in a sense, I love the way that you recast that Genesis story, or rather recovered, I think, the patristic interpretation and the rabbinic interpretation that this was a great act of uh, mercy on God's part. I just That's just a comment, and I, I love how you did that. It's all plagiarism. I don't have any original ideas. It's just the fathers. But I mean, that's kind of like where we want to be, right? As Christians, like when you get a little nervous, if you're like, hey, you know, we've been at this thing for 2000 years, but I've got a new take on what it means for Jesus to be Lord. You're like, I, I don't, well, I'm listening, but I don't think that's a good idea. Like we've spent a lot that's, of time, right? That's the preface to every heresy. Exactly. <laughs> so good. Um, so you talk a little bit about dominion and I'm, I'm in my head, like I, I want all, this is all going to come together, but I'm, I'm kind of going for some loose threads of your reflection. And, and I, I know that this is all going to tie together for us. Um, you talk about dominion and how um, it is not the same as like domination. It's not the same as, you know, to be fully human is not to get our way. It's not to be selfish. It's not to lord power over others. Uh, and you talk about dominion as an aspect of what it means to be fully human, that whenever Jesus commanded the sea to be still, he wasn't working a miracle, but displaying his full humanity because humanity has dominion over creation. But of course, the, the paradox or the other side of that 
the reason Dominion can't be domination is because um, our Dominion is received as a gift from the true king, that we are kings with a little K under the lordship of the ultimate king of heaven, and that uh, Adam was also, you know, sent to serve the garden. I think to kill to the Hebrew to till and to keep it is is also translated to serve. And so, um, so that that moment, right, that Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm wondering if you can say a word, and you might not know whether from your own thoughts or how the patristics would read it about what that means for us. Because one of the things I wonder is whether or not whenever we know what's good for ourselves, whenever we decide what's good for ourselves apart from God, is that like the entryway into being subhuman? Is that still the entryway into spiraling away? Um, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, there's so much to say about all this stuff. I think you and I could probably talk about this for like nine hours. Uh, but the know, longest the... podcast in the history of the world called the Guinness <laughs> Book of World Records. I'm so in. I'm, Do it. I'm, Emily, <laughs> brew some coffee. <laughs> so, I mean, you brought up that phrase to till and to keep. So Adam and Eve's work in the garden. Um, I think that's really interesting. Margaret Barker, who's a theologian or really kind of biblical studies person who works on first temple theology, so really ancient Jewish theology, talks about those terms um, to till, just as you said, meaning to serve. But it means specifically, according to Margaret Barker, to serve the liturgy, to participate in the liturgy, to do the liturgy in the temple. And to keep means to keep the tradition, to keep the scriptures. Um, for Alexander Schmemann, the Russian theologian, um, humanity, Adam and Eve, have one specific job. And their one specific job that they're given by God is to be the, priest, the priests of creation. So the, as the priests of creation, their job is to give thanks to God, to return to God from what he has given to us. And so that's, that's kind of the essence of what their dominion is for. They're not there to um, boss all the animals around and like bum out the zebras or whatever by giving them a lot of work to do or whatever. They're there to give thanks to God, to be the priests of the creation. And I think that for me, you know, the, the kind of heart of our liturgy, at least in non-COVID times, is the Eucharist. And as I'm sure you and I have both talked about probably ad nauseum with folks, Eucharisto in Greek is to give thanks. It is the prayer of thanksgiving. And I think that like, for me in a way, I don't think I have any power to get back on that path to full humanness on my own. But one thing that I do through grace is that I acknowledge my true place in relation to God and that everything is a gift from him. And so my kind of most Christian act, I think, is in all humility to start giving thanks, to recognize how dependent I, I am on him for everything and to really rejoice in that. Um, and by the same token, when I'm sort of following that evil inclination, when I'm turning away from him, um, so much of that has to do with my pride. When I kind of put myself at the center of the universe, when I have to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I have to get what's mine and I have to protect myself and I have to provide for myself and I have to dominate the world, 
that's when I start sort of saying like, God, I don't have time for you because I'm, I'm trying to be out here making money or I'm trying to like whatever it is. Um, and so Augustine says that pride is the source of all the vices and humility is the source of all the virtues. Not humility pretending I'm stupid when I'm really smart or whatever, but recognizing that I am like a teeny tiny helpless ant crawling around on this rock in a random galaxy, you know, in this giant universe and as God that's doing everything. Well, and I would, I mean, that's, that's so, so rich. And, 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 you know, I think about pride and humility, I tend to agree with that. I mean, another way, I mean, I think we should keep the traditional theological language, but in listening to you talk, I mean, I think that we could basically say pride equals unreality, humility equals reality, because whenever we're operating from that place of pride, it's that we are, I mean, we are literally not in reality because uh, we are setting ourselves up to have some existence that isn't contingent and received as a gift upon the God in whose image we're created. You talked about Kierkegaard and, and the way he defines sins, if I remember, he says that sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in God. And I think that you could even say that basically sin is a choice to not be human um, based on kind of how you articulated what it means to be human. And so like, we, you know, we speak of pride as a, as, as a sin, and it is, it is a sin. It is the greatest of sins. It's the original sin. But the moment like we are in that place of pride, we have stepped away from who we actually are. We're not human in that moment. And I think part of what I'm kind of hearing you say um, and the way that you're kind of really nuancing Aaron's talk is that, yes, everything he said is true. Let's just not make the mistake of saying that whenever we're operating out of what we might call like this describes a low anthropology, let's not call that being human because the patristics and the first Christians said, that is far from human. And what I also love and I'm curious about, and this is where things get really, really rich and really, really fun, salvation and our doctrine of soteriology. If I, I mean, if the logical conclusion that I'm, that, that I'm kind of taking from this is that when we are saved fully, when we are raised bodily in the power of Jesus's resurrection, when that day comes, that that will be the day, the moment, the instance that we are for the first time, like Jesus, fully human. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So, so for the fathers, um, there, there wasn't like an atonement theory of the early church aside from just Easter. Um, but, uh, for the fathers, they would talk about, and this, this appears really heavily in Irenaeus of Lyon, but in lots of the fathers, they use this term recapitulation in which like mm -hmm. Christ is the kind of humanity represented or kind of like humanity 2.0 or something like that. And the only way to return to, um, to that original human nature is to actually die die to the old Adam, die to the old self, die to this low anthropology humanity, which we're all living out and be reborn by water and the spirit in Christ. 
And so baptism is where that new humanity begins, but it's just the first baby step. There's, I think there's some sort of, sometimes we're tempted to kind of think of baptism because it is so holy and it is so important. It is so life-changing as like a done deal, as an end in and of itself. Whereas baptism is just like the first step on this life of growing in Christ. And I think the culmination of that salvation is at the final resurrection at the last judgment. Um, but I, I think about like baptism as a first step in that process and that process sort of happening in this life in the way that I think about, um, in a sense, a wedding is the first step in marriage, you know, like, mm -hmm. like on the day of my wedding, after the priest said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, um, we were technically married. But if we had just sort of like shaken hands and part, gone our separate ways after the wedding and been like, yeah, let's go on a date sometime. That'd be cool. Um, we wouldn't really be married. Like the more right. the longer we're married, the more we live into that, the more kind of married we are. And I think it's true. The same is true for living into baptism. So I think in this life, through the grace of God, we are constantly being saved as we are being drawn more and more to God. And as we say yes to that grace more and more, as we learn how to sort of reject the voice that tells us to say no more and more. But I think, as you say, like salvation isn't really like complete in a sense until we are completely in Christ. You know, we are, when we are really um, twigs rooted in the true vine, when we are in him as he is in the father and the father is in him, then finally it's like the fullness of that true humanity returning, the fullness of that salvation. Not only are we the image of God, we become like unto God, image and likeness of God. You know, we become co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom. So, um, so it's kind of so would so that's that's really really helpful and the analogy of of marriage is is meaningful because i think anyone who's been married knows that like the moment i mean that's a sacrament of the church the moment um you know you get married like you're married and in the eyes of god in the eyes of the church in the eyes of everyone whether it's your second day of marriage or your 45th year like you're still just as married as you were before but assuming that is a healthy relationship of growth, change, and love, you know, no one looks back uh, and says, you know, I think we knew each other more intimately and we're manifesting this more brilliantly on day number two than year 45, right? So it's something that you grow into. I guess the difference, well, I, actually, I don't know, there might be some debate within Orthodox circles, you can weigh in on this, uh, is that at the resurrection, at the you know, the, the recapitulation at the consummation of all things, uh, is, is that like, is there an exclamation stamp on it of like complete, you know, like a perfect cake coming out of the oven or, you know, whenever, uh, Paul says faith, ho hope, and love endure for eternity, uh, will we continue to grow, uh, for all of eternity in our Lord's presence becoming more and more human each day? Yeah. So, you know, I love the right one funeral service. Um, mm -hmm. And in the prayers, it talks about the the person going, kind of moving from glory into glory. Yeah. Like there's the sense that like after we die, we don't stop growing in relationship with God. And I, some of the fathers talk about it as though like, you know, you die, you, uh, the body and soul are put back together in the resurrection. There's a last judgment. If you're judged to eternal life or when we're judged to eternal life, um, we get there and we're like, this is it. This is the as good as it can possibly be until the next millisecond. And we're like, no, 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 this is as good as can possibly yeah. be. And the next millisecond goes, no, 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 this. 
so it, it's like this eternal progression of growing into the glory of God. Um, but every stage in that progression feels like it can't possibly get better than this. So I think in the one sense, from our perspective, it will feel like the fullness of humanity, um, the fullness of being like unto God. Uh, but in fact, we'll be constantly growing in a constant progression. Yeah, that's, that's, that's beautiful. I think C.S. Lewis, his analogy was, it's like a, a book, you know, that um, gets longer. Uh, each, each page you turn gets better. And every time you turn a page, it gets longer and your desire to read it more. Get, I mean, that was kind of his, his metaphor, I think. That's great. Um, so Bernie, let's pivot a little bit with the conversation. Cause I, I really could, I mean, I, I literally could just do this for the next nine hours and I know I'm that in. we can't um tell me um tell me how um how COVID has been for you and for your people I'm, I'm mindful that whenever we envision this podcast um that we did so kind of mindful that you know we're all kind of in a pandemic we've all got you know things happening and I'm just wondering how you and your people are doing and um how some of the things we're talking about have been important to you in particular over the last year being a parish priest. Yeah. I mean, I think for, for my family and for our church family, it's been rough. You know, we have a lot of elderly folks who are particularly vulnerable to COVID. I myself have some real serious heart issues. So I was deemed a high risk COVID person. Um, and we have folks who live in like memory care units who are like, why did my wife stop visiting me? You know, I don't know what the heck is going on. So it's just, it's been rough at Grace as I'm sure it has in your congregation. But um, it's also been a blessing in some ways. I mean, I think that um, we started, we had never before um, broadcast a service or I didn't even really know what live streaming was before the pandemic. Um and now we live stream all of our services and people will write from Australia and South Africa and, you know, say like, oh, I've been enjoying being a little member of Grace from from afar. Um, and that's a huge blessing. It's it's really cool that we've had people find us through our web presence who might not have discovered us otherwise or might not have known about the Episcopal Church. Um, and then I, I started my little podcast, The History of Christianity, during this time. And that's been just a really exciting, fun, and rewarding experience. Um, I wish we were number two in Finland, but number 62, which is, you know, much less impressive on the Christian charts. Yeah. <laughs> huge, huge. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. So I think that, like, um, a lot of folks in the congregation, we've been reading in, in Lent um, some, some of the sayings of the Desert Fathers. And I think a lot of folks in the congregation have actually felt like in the isolation that they've been living in, they've become kind of more aware of the presence of Christ in their lives. I mean, their prayer life has gotten richer. Spiritual reading has become more of a kind of anchor to them. And it really has been a blessing in some ways. So I'd say overall an awful time, which God has used to his own purposes in some ways. Yeah, that that sounds really, really authentic and true and um, kind of resonates with my own experience. Um, so I guess one last question I have um, as you think about all this in our conversation and um, I'm just wondering, um, I remember we were, we were gonna have you as a speaker last Lent uh, at St. Michael's and you couldn't come because of COVID. And we, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm remembering that correctly, right? 
Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think maybe you all had had pivoted away from it by the time I was supposed to come or That's whatever. Right. But yeah, yeah. neither. Yeah. Was, we could do it because of COVID. That's right. Yeah. So we did two of them and then we just canceled it because we hadn't, you know, figured out all the the Zoom stuff yet. Um, but um, I just so admire you, Bertie, um, and um, love your perspective and uh, love what a learner you are and how articulate you are about the faith and the way that you share it with such ease and humor. And so uh, is there anything, you know, as we kind of wrap our conversation up that you would want to leave the people of St. Michael's with and anyone else listening, whether in Finland, if, if you know, if they have tracked you down uh, or in the United States. You know, every time I visit St. Michael's, I've just been struck by what a faithful yet kind of open and welcoming and generous congregation it is. You know, I think it's sometimes it's rare to find this beautiful combination of people who are taking Christianity really, really, really seriously and who take just like welcoming everybody with open arms really, really, really seriously. And I think that, you know, I have to say not to give you too many props, but I think part of that is your leadership because that's also who I know you to be as a Christian. Uh, but I just think that like, you guys are so blessed to have found each other. It's a perfect fit and it's just such a wonderful congregation. So I would just ask that you keep on doing what you're doing, people of St. Michael's, and that you would teach the rest of us to do likewise. I'm, I'm a big fan. That's so so nice and means a lot. Means a lot coming from you. All right, well, Bertie, I lied. I've got five more questions for you. Oh no! And um, these are these are questions. They have you can't quote. You're not allowed to quote the patristics or anything like that. These are just five five questions that I'm asking all of our guests at the end of our podcast, and you can answer in a word, a sentence, two sentences max. Okay, you ready? Yeah, ready. All right, number one, Bertie. What are you grateful for at the moment? Oh, man. Um, I feel like it sounds cheesy, but like everything, you know? I mean, I feel like God is so good and just the gift of life and friendship and getting to talk to you for this time and my ministry. I don't know. I just feel like every day I feel like I've won the lottery. Like, I don't know. Everything's wonderful, really. Pandemic aside. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, okay. What are you less sure of given your experience of COVID-19 than you were before? Everything. I mean, I think that <laughs> like, uh, you know, being told by my cardiologist, like, don't leave the house. If you get COVID, you'll totally die. It just, life is so contingent, you know, life yeah. is so short. And I, um, I don't know that I took that for granted before but i think i'm just much more aware of what a kind of individual gift every day is you know god's a good answer ash wednesday took on a different meaning i think for many of us this year yeah okay number three what are you more sure of after a year of pandemic uh you know i'm sure of of God's faithfulness. I mean, I, and I think the grace that he offers us, we, I just, I can't believe that all of my wonderful congregation have just decided to stick with us on YouTube and on zoom and to continue in the prayers and just put, they've just sort of overcome every obstacle to continue worshiping together and being united as one community. And that's a miracle. I mean, it's just amazing. It so, yeah. I'm, 
I do feel sure of, of God's goodness and blessing. Actually, I'm not supposed to correct you. Actually, it's not a miracle. It's them being truly fully human. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I, I, I did listen. I did listen. Yeah. They're, uh, number four, what movie, show, book, or song? Uh, what movie, show, book, or song has brought you sanity and or peace in the last year? Oh, man. Um, you know, I'm a huge uh, Trollope fan. And uh, right now I'm in the middle of The Vicar of Bullhampton. It's just like the best escapist literature. Um, if you don't know Anthony Trollope, whoever's listening, he's like the most Anglican of all Anglican writers. Uh, but he's, and I mean that both because he writes about Church of England clergy a lot, but also because he's just so humane and so full of joy and so faithful without being kind of, um, I don't know, pedantic about it. He's just great. Great. Okay. Last question. Bertie, when you meet God face to face, what do you hope to hear God say to you? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I can tell you what I hope he doesn't say, which was, I never knew you. Um, that's what he says to the goats. Uh, so whatever the opposite of that is, you know, welcome home. Um, come uh, bring a robe, slaughter a calf, put rings on his fingers for my son who I thought was dead is alive. <laughs> something like that. I don't know. Amen. Uh, something good. I love it. Bertie, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for being who you are. And you know, one of the things that um, I, I agree, you and I are really um, blessed to be able to do what we do. And even though it has been a hard year, um, it's it's also been a blessing in a sense. But one of the things that makes the hard times manageable and the good times even better are having colleagues who are friends who I just respect so much. And so thanks for being one of those. And thanks so much for sharing your time with me and your wisdom with our church. We're really, really grateful. It's really an honor uh, to be asked and really a blast to get to just hang out with you for a bit, even if over Zoom.